Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was with, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply ply, and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them and on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Church of God, this is the word of God. Thank you, Paris. Good morning. It's a privilege to be in front of you today. We're going to be looking at the passage that Paris just read, Genesis 1. But before we do, I should probably introduce myself. Uh, For the benefit of those of you who don't know me, my name is George Bennett, and I serve at Harvest Decatur as chair of the missions team. As many, if not most of you know already, Heather Jackson underwent some surgery on Wednesday, uh, successful surgery, and Pastor Ryan asked me to fill in this week so he would have one fewer thing to deal with. He asked me because I told him a couple months ago that I had a sermon ready to go if he needed a backup on short notice. Several years ago, even before COVID, we started encouraging each other on the elder board to have a sermon in the hopper in case of unplanned absences. I must admit I didn't expect Pastor Ryan to cash that check quite so quickly, Uh, but it's a privilege to be speaking to you and a privilege to be able to help the Jackson family in this way. Let's remember to keep Heather and them in our prayers as she recovers from the procedure. Some of you might remember in the summer of 2021, the elders taught a sermon series called A New Look at the Old Testament. One of my takeaways from that series was that I wanted to approach the Old Testament with anticipation of finding hidden treasures in it. 
Before we did that series, I tended to think there were two kinds of Old Testament passages. Ones we are super familiar with, such as Noah and the flood, David and Goliath, and Daniel and the lion's den. Then others that are hard to read and apply. What I've come to appreciate in the last two years is that both kinds of passages have nuggets that can be revealed to us if we are willing to search for them. I'm hoping you will come to appreciate the same thing if you haven't already. Many of you already know that my day job is chemistry professor at Millican University. As a chemistry professor, I sometimes write scientific papers and I read a lot of lab reports. This might surprise you, but none of my chemistry research papers have been written in poetry, nor have any of the student lab reports I have read. Now, don't get me wrong, I like poetry. I've even written a poem or two in my time. I think poetry can express profound ideas in succinct and memorable ways. Poems often, however, require the reader to interpret the meaning, especially if symbolism is involved. That's one of many reasons that scientific reports are not typically poetic. My favorite poems are ones that have a definite structure. For example, even though limericks are not considered sophisticated, I enjoy reading and writing them. They usually have an AABBA rhyming pattern and a meter consisting of a 99559 syllable sequence. Here's a limerick I wrote for this occasion. There once was a man from Decatur who prayed to his holy creator. No longer forlorn, again he was born. Now the devil calls him a traitor. I also appreciate sonnets. Sonnets can come in several different forms, but my favorite kind consists of 14 lines. There are three quatrains or stanzas of four lines apiece with alternating rhymes, followed by what's called a heroic couplet at the end. All 14 lines are written in iambic pentameter, which means they have 10 syllables with alternating emphasis. Whether it be a limerick or a sonnet, it's not hard to imagine how the poetic structure could be obscured if it were translated into a different language. Some of the poetic elements might still come through, but it wouldn't be easily recognizable as a poem. That's what we're dealing with in Genesis 1. This text is a Hebrew poem. We don't see it easily in the English translation, but the passage does give us clues. If we can follow the clues, we can extract the author's message. Now, I cannot read or speak Hebrew, so I am relying on the expertise of people who do. Much of what I'm going to say today I learned from a podcast by a Messianic Jew named Marty Solomon. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's pause to pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us yet another chance to read your word, to study your word, to learn from your word, and to apply your word. We look forward with anticipation to what you will teach us today. We pray you open our eyes to the things you want us to see, and you open our ears to the things you want us to hear. 
Reveal more of yourself to us today, we pray, so that we can know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. My outline will be a little different than usual. Typically, here at Harvest, the sermons are what we call expository. The person preaching goes through the passage verse by verse and extracts truths and or applications from the text. Expository preaching can be very effective when it's done well, and I would say that it is generally the best approach to sermons. On occasion, though, it can be helpful to take a step back from the passage and view it from a somewhat broader perspective. Imagine if we were all training to become botanists. It would be useful for us to examine and identify every tree along the path through the woods. But every now and then, we would benefit from examining an aerial photo of the woods to be able to see how all the individual trees together form the forest. So as I said, my outline will be a little different than usual. First, we'll cover the structure and main idea of the passage. Then we will discuss what the passage teaches us about God, followed by what the passage teaches us about ourselves. And we will finish with some ways to apply the lessons of this passage. But before we begin any of that, let's zoom all the way out and briefly consider the structure of the Bible itself. The Bible is a collection of 66 books, but it is one book that tells one overarching story. If you think about other books you have read, most of them probably had a preface that the author used to introduce or set the stage for what follows. The Bible has a preface too, but it is incorporated into the body of the book. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and the preface is in Genesis. Specifically, chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis serve as the preface for the whole Bible. Those 11 chapters identify who Yahweh is, particularly in contrast to the mythological gods of Egypt and Mesopotamia. Those chapters tell us about who people are and who we were created to be. And those chapters teach how the world became broken. All that sets the stage for chapter 12 when the story of how God will make things right really begins. If we zoom in to look at Genesis 1 through 11, we can see that it is divided into eight large sections. The fourth and eighth sections are both genealogies. The first genealogy culminates in Noah, and the second genealogy culminates in Abram. The first of the eight large sections is the passage Paris read earlier, Genesis 1-1 through 2-3. So let's examine the structure of the passage. I heard a brother here at Harvest say that to best understand a passage, we need to know to whom it was written, what was happening before it was written, and what happened after it was received. Genesis was written to the Hebrew people after their exodus from Egypt, but before they entered the promised land of God. God had taken his people out of Egypt. Now he had to take Egypt out of his people. Most likely, all of these people had recently been slaves and had been their whole lives. They had lived in a land of mythology involving multiple gods who played roles in creating the cosmic order out of chaos. The Hebrews were heading to a land of other mythologies of other pagan gods. 
The human author of Genesis was Moses, who was probably one of the smartest people who ever lived. He experienced the finest education Egypt had to offer. He was familiar with not just the details of the mythologies of the region, but also with the literary styles they were communicated in. When the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write Genesis 1, he chose to write it in a chiastic structure or in the form of a chiasmus. That's the first point in your sermon notes. The structure of Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 is chiastic. We here today are not terribly familiar with chiasma. In the writing we're familiar with, the main idea is often presented at the start. and What follows is the evidence or support for the idea. Or occasionally, the main idea will appear at the end of the story. In a chiasmus, the second half reflects the first half. In the name chiasmus, you can hear chi, which is the Greek letter that looks to us like an X. The bottom half of the X reflects the top half, and both halves point to the middle. The middle of the chiasmus is where the main idea is located. Therefore, we need to know where the chiasmus begins and ends and what is in the middle. I said that the second half of the chiasmus reflects the first half. There are two ways the chiasmus can be constructed. It can follow an ABC-CBA pattern in which the ideas or themes of the first half are repeated in reverse or inverse parallel order. Or it can follow an ABC-ABC pattern in which the ideas or themes of the first half are repeated in a parallel fashion. Moses used both types of chiastic arrangements in Genesis 1. There is a chiasmus of content that follows the ABC-ABC parallel pattern. Look at the days of creation. In the first three days, God doesn't really create anything. He separates things that are already created. On day one, God separated the light from the darkness, or daytime from nighttime. On day two, he separated the waters above from the waters below. On day three, he separated the water from the dry land. Then starting with day four, God filled the realms that he separated in the first three days. On day four, he placed the sun in the daytime and the moon in the nighttime. On day five, he filled the sky and the oceans with creatures. And on day six, he filled the land. In other words, day four is parallel to day one, day five is parallel to day two, and day six is parallel to day three. That's the smaller chiasmus. The larger chiasmus is one of form, namely the number of Hebrew words used to describe each day, and it includes all seven days of creation. Seven is a significant number for this passage. In the Hebrew, the first sentence has seven words. Certain words and phrases also appear seven times, such as, and God saw, and it was so. Now, if the chiasmus encompasses seven days of creation, and the main idea is in the middle of the chiasmus, we should expect to find the main idea in day four. The Hebrew word that is at the center of the chiasmus shows up in verse 14 in the English Bible. It's the word translated as seasons. The same Hebrew word is translated elsewhere as Sabbath. 
The main idea of Genesis 1 is not creation, it's rest. That's the second point in your sermon notes. The main idea of Genesis 1 is rest. The first lesson God wanted his people to learn was how to rest. Remember, the Hebrews had just been liberated from slavery. Slaves were slaves 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Their value was in how much work they could do, their productivity. Their performance determined their worth. God wanted to break that pattern of thinking. He wanted his people to know that their worth was not connected to their performance. We are not human doings, we are human beings. Our worth is based on our bearing the image of God. Resting should remind us that God loves us independently of how much effort we exert or how much we produce. In the matter of rest, God led by example. He rested on the seventh day. He didn't rest from everything. He rested from creating. Actually, that's not technically correct. Both ancient and modern Jewish rabbis have pointed out that according to chapter 2, verse 2, God finished his work on the seventh day, not the sixth day. But God rested on the seventh day. What those ancient rabbis concluded was that God created rest. If rest is something God created, the implication is that rest is not merely the absence of work. It's something that is real and inherently good. In Hebrew thought, seven was the number of completion. Since God created rest on the seventh day, it's fair to say that the universe wouldn't be complete without rest. So God set the example of resting. He did not have a physical need for rest. He wasn't exhausted. He rested because he knew when enough was enough. Resting, therefore, is an application of self-control. God has self-control and he wants his people to have self-control. He wants his people to know when enough is enough. Have you ever worked on a project and done one too many things? A plumber told me once that the right time to stop tightening a connection is just before it breaks. Sometimes we turn the screw or swing the hammer one too many times or saw too much off the end. We can ruin the very thing we are creating by trying to do too much. God knew not to do too much. God knew when he had created enough and didn't need to create anymore. God also wanted his people to learn that lesson. He gave his image bearers the capacity to multiply and create new things, but he wanted them to exercise self-control over that capacity. He wanted them to know they didn't have to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He wanted them to trust that he had provided everything they needed because he loved them. And he wanted them to trust that his love for them was not tied to their performance. God's love doesn't stop when the creating stops. So rest is not just an application of self-control, it's also an application of trust. That's why the title of my sermon today is Trust Enough to Rest. Have you ever wondered why the Jewish day starts at sundown? One of the repeated phrases in our passage is, 
and there was evening, and there was morning. That phrase shows up at the end of each of the first six days of creation. God arranged it that way so the Jews would start their day by resting. And in case you doubt that this passage is about rest, let me point out something else. Earlier I talked about the eight large sections in chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis. Genesis 1 is not the only section with a chiastic structure. In fact, all six of the sections that are not genealogies are written chiastically, and the eight sections together are arranged chiastically. I have a slide that shows the pattern. The story of creation parallels the story of Noah's Ark and the flood. The story of Adam and Eve parallels the story of Noah and his sons. The story of Cain and Abel parallels the story of the Tower of Babel. The genealogy from Adam to Noah parallels the genealogy from Shem to Abram. The center of this superchiasmus is Genesis 5:29, which reads, And called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And the word at the very middle of the chiasmus, the name Noah, which means rest. We'll come back to this idea of Sabbath rest when we talk about applications, but let's move on now to see what this passage teaches us about God. That's the third point in the outline, what the passage teaches about God. We have already discussed how this passage shows us that God is a God of self-control, that he knows when to stop, that he knows when enough is enough. We have also discussed how the passage implies that God's love is based on who we are, not what we do. We can glean a few more things if we go back to verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse 1 tells us that God is the creator. Verse 1 also tells us that God was before the beginning. He transcends his creation. If the creation ceased to exist, God would still exist. His existence does not depend on anyone or anything else. Verse 2 tells us that God is spirit. In addition, it shows that God interacts with his creation. He is close to his creation. He is not distant and removed. The word theologians use to describe this closeness is imminence. The word Moses used was hovering, which is the image of a mother bird sitting on her eggs. There is a nurturing care that will bring forth something good. And verse 3 tells us that God communicates through words. We could even say that God is word. He can exercise his power through words, and he can communicate with other verbal beings. God's word has power, whether it is spoken or written. If you believe the Bible is God's word, then it follows that the Bible has the same power that brought the universe into existence. In a way, these first three verses of Genesis introduce us to the Trinity. 
We see God, the eternal transcendent creator. We see God, the imminent spirit. And we see God, the word. We get a glimpse of the Trinity again in verse 26 when God said, let us make man in our image. Another aspect of God this passage teaches that is worth mentioning is that he delights in his creation. How many times does the passage say that God saw that it was good? The repetition of that phrase is one of the clues that this passage is a poem. But more importantly, the repetition of the phrase underscores how much delight God feels, if you will, when he looks at what he has made. This is a bit of a tangent, but I have a lot of pet peeves. I say that more by way of confession than a badge of honor. I'm not proud of the fact that so many insignificant things annoy me. Some of my pet peeves are peeves about pets. But most have to do with certain behaviors of people. A couple of my pet peeves, however, relate to biblical interpretation or biblical commentary. One of those pet peeves is when people say that God's original creation was perfect. There are a few reasons why that's wrong, not the least of which is that God himself didn't use that adjective to describe his creation. He said it was good or very good. Moreover, God gave his creatures, particularly humans, the ability to create in the sense of making new things and multiplying and improving things. If creation were perfect, there would be no room to make it better and no need to even maintain it. We would do nothing but rest. I could go on, but I don't want to belabor the point any more than I already have. Now, to be fair, I'm sure the people who say the original creation or the Garden of Eden were perfect mean that they were made without sin and they came from the hand of God. At any rate, my point is that God looked at everything he made and said, that's good. That gives me pleasure. God is perfect, but he's not a perfectionist who has a fear of failure. He's more of an artist who enjoys the work he produces. I think there's at least one more thing we can infer about God from this passage, and specifically from the structure of the passage. Remember, we talked about the chiastic structure of this account. With a chiastic structure, the main idea is in the middle, and to know where the middle is, we have to know where the chiasmus begins and ends. In other words, the treasure is somewhat hidden, and God wants us to hunt for it. To be sure, he wants us to find it, but he wants us to be active readers and listeners. He wants us to want to find the treasure. Let's turn our attention now to what this passage says about us. I said it before, but it bears repeating. We need to rest. We have a physical need for rest, but it's more than rest just for the sake of rest. We have a spiritual need for rest because rest is a reminder that our worth or our value does not depend on our performance. God loves us because of who we are, not because of what we do. Did you notice when we read through the chapter that on days one through five, when God looked at what he made, he saw that it was good? But on day six, when he looked at what he made, he saw that it was very good. The creation of people is what made it very good in God's eyes. 
He loves us deeply. And his love is not contingent upon our performance. Now that cuts two ways. On the one hand, we cannot perform so abysmally that God will stop loving us. On the other hand, we cannot earn greater portions of God's love through fantastic performance. I confess I sometimes have trouble keeping that mindset. When I encounter tough times, I often think I must be getting punished for not praying enough or not being faithful enough. And when I encounter pleasant times, I often think I must be getting rewarded for praying well or for being faithful. I was born again more than 30 years ago, and I'm still fighting the urge to believe that God's love for me is conditional. Remember, one of the purposes of Genesis 1 was to distinguish God from the mythological gods of the surrounding nations. In most mythologies, people had to occasionally appease one or more gods. We worship a God who has no need to be appeased by us, and we couldn't appease him anyway, even if we tried. A.W. Tozer described the goodness of God this way. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. God knows what we need to be truly happy, and he is pleased to give us what we need. According to Psalm 84:11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold. No good thing does he withhold. Let's say that together. No good thing does he withhold. If it's good, he won't withhold it. If he withholds it, that means it either isn't good or the time isn't right yet. So we need to rest to remind us that God loves us anyway. As far as the idea of rest is presented here in Genesis 1, I don't want to call it a command because we don't see any imperative language such as, thou shalt rest. I will call it an expectation, though. God wants and expects his people to rest. Now, if God expects us to rest, he must have made us with the ability to rest. In other words, he must have made us with the capacity to choose rest over work. Another way of saying that is that this passage teaches us that God created us with self-control. Self-control is one of the characteristics that distinguishes humans from wild animals. In economic terms, every person is both a producer and a consumer. To put it more graphically, every person is both a creator and a destroyer. If God created us with self-control, he created us with the ability to say enough is enough. He created us with the ability to decide that we can take a break from producing and we can take a break from consuming. Another implication for us is that our purpose is not solely connected to our work and the meaning in our lives is not solely connected to the things we produce or consume. Time is as much a dimension as length or width or height. We can find meaning in time, not just in space or the objects that occupy space. Some of what we learn about ourselves from this passage is by analogy to what we learn about God. Earlier we discussed how God's word has power. 
By analogy, we can infer that our words have power. Now, obviously, our words do not have the same power that God's word has, but our words have power nonetheless. The final points I want to make about this, what this passage teaches us about us stem from verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Each person, whether a born-again believer or not, bears the image of God, but only incompletely. Because God himself transcends gender, both male and female people are needed to even begin to bear the complete image of God. Men and women are complementary. Men supply what is missing in women, and women supply what is missing in men. At least that's how it's supposed to work. We live in a Genesis 3 world, not a Genesis 1 world. Our world is broken because of our sin, so we fail to live as we are created to live. The bottom line, though, is that every person, born or unborn, bears the image of God, regardless of sex, age, or ethnic background. Every person has value and dignity. No one is useless, and no one is without purpose. Furthermore, God created us with bodies, and it's primarily through our bodies that God's image is expressed to the world. What I mean by that is we use our bodies to speak or write words and to make things and to serve one another and to physically touch one another and to present gifts to one another. We can even communicate non-verbally through our body language. For example, researchers have shown that emotional pain causes activity in the frontal lobe of the brain. But seeing the face of an empathetic person causes natural pain-killing molecules to be released where they are needed most, in the frontal lobe of the brain. If that weren't enough, the incredible diversity of sizes, forms, colors, and languages shows us how inclusive and expansive God is we can safely conclude that our bodies matter to God. Our biology matters to God. The phrase image of God is interesting. It was a phrase that would have been familiar to the Israelites. It was a phrase that ancient kings and pharaohs used to describe themselves when they asserted their alleged divine right to rule and exercise authority. The Israelites had just left a land where the supreme ruler claimed to be the image of God on earth. When God told the Israelites that all people bear the image of God, it would have come as a shock to them. That notion was revolutionary for its time. God was saying that all people are intended to rule and exercise authority. The distinction was that God wanted people to use their authority to make the world better for others. We're supposed to be princes and princesses who rule by serving. We've talked about the structure and main idea of the passage and what the passage teaches us about God and about ourselves. Now let's talk about applications. The first application I'm going to give you is worth the price of admission. The first application is rest. That is, take one day every week and don't work. I probably ought to qualify that statement a bit. Some people bristle at the idea of a Sabbath day. 
They make arguments about how observing the Sabbath was an Old Testament practice that is no longer in effect, and trying to form, uh, observe a Sabbath now is a form of legalism. I read once where a pastor said that the fourth commandment about remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy was the only one of the Ten Commandments that was not repeated and amplified in the New Testament. I don't believe that is factually correct, but even if it is, doesn't it make more sense that we should think about the fourth commandment the same way we think about the other nine? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took several of the commandments and turned them into matters of the heart. Murder isn't just killing an innocent person, it's anger and insults. Adultery isn't just marital infidelity, it's lust. So a Sabbath isn't just a day off from work. It's an attitude of trust in a good God that results in the exercise of self-control. Yes, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But don't ignore that first clause. The Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath is one of God's good gifts to us. I should mention that there is a kind of rest that is available to the follower of Jesus anytime, anywhere. It is the rest for our souls that comes from having Christ bear the burden of righteousness for us. It is the rest for our souls that comes through communion with the transcendent. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you are unfamiliar with that kind of rest, if you are looking for rest for your soul, you need to let Jesus carry the burden of righteousness for you. I or any of the elders would be happy to talk with you after the service and explain how to obtain that rest. That rest is indescribably wonderful. If you have already experienced such rest through salvation in Jesus Christ, then I challenge you to think about someone you know who needs rest for their soul and pray for an opportunity to explain to them how they can find such rest. Like I said, that rest is wonderful, but it's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about a day of rest. The New Testament doesn't specify what day should be our day of rest, or on what day we should worship, for that matter. A few years ago, Daria and I decided to do our best to make Sundays our day of rest. It made sense for us because we both had jobs that were primarily Monday through Friday, and we were already spending Sunday mornings in church. We like having the rest day to help prepare us for the work and school week ahead. A couple times a year, I have work obligations on Sundays that are mandatory, so in those weeks, I try to find a different rest day. What's interesting about that is before I met Daria, I probably would have said that Sunday was my day of rest, but it really wasn't. At a minimum, I was checking my work email, and fairly frequently, I was doing work that pertained to my job, such as grading tests or writing tests. When Daria and I committed ourselves to having a true rest day, I really had to discipline myself to not log into my work email. I've also had to try to learn to accept that some things won't get accomplished, at least not as quickly as I would like. Tom Allworth described that as trusting God with the things that don't get done. For many of you, Sunday might be the most reasonable day of the week for rest, 
but maybe not all of you. Perhaps you are a senior pastor whose main work responsibility is associated with Sunday mornings. Or maybe your work is seasonal or follows a schedule that doesn't allow you to take Sundays off. If you are in one of those situations, you need to find a different day of the week. Now maybe you're listening to me and thinking, I understand the passage is teaching us to rest, but I can't possibly take a full day of rest every week. If that's you today, my recommendation would be to start with what you can. Find one responsibility or activity to start resting from once a week. Over time, you can start to identify other ways to rest. And you might have to learn how to say no to some things. So what does a day of rest look like? I can't fully answer that question for you. At a bare minimum, I would say you shouldn't be doing anything related to the work that generates your income. I would include any side hustles in that too. Sabbath rest is about trusting God that he has provided everything you need, but earning income is a tacit expression that you think you need more. Beyond that, I can't really tell you what your day of rest will look like. I can tell you that if you are worried about whether you are doing it correctly, you are not doing it correctly. Remember, rest is not about performing. Rest is about trust and peace. It's not an exaggeration to say that biblical Sabbath is intended to be a visit to heaven each week. It's a celebration. The Sabbath isn't a challenge to achieve the greatest state of physical inertia possible. And it's not a grim effort to avoid everything that brings you joy. I suppose it comes down to what occupies your mind. For example, if I'm sitting in church but I'm concentrating on what I must do when I get home, I'm not really resting, regardless of whether the activity I'm anticipating has anything to do with my job or not. If you're a parent, you probably also want to consider what message you are sending to your children through your actions. Are they learning from your example to trust that what God has provided is enough? Are they learning from your example that God's love for them doesn't stop when their achievement stops? That ties in with the second application I would draw from this passage. If God's love for people does not depend on their performance, we need to take care to avoid communicating that our love for people does depend on their performance. The words you use and when you use them can inadvertently convey the message to others that your love for them is tied to some performance standard. For example, if you are married, examine your words to make sure that you are not wording or timing your compliments or criticisms in a way that makes your spouse feel as though the intensity of your love for them correlates with their physical appearance or with their completion of certain chores. Make sure you express your love at times when it won't be construed as performance dependent. Remember, your words have power. Let me close with this. At the beginning today, I talked about some different kinds of poems, including limericks and sonnets. Since the passage we have been studying is a poem, I thought that a poem might be the best way to conclude this sermon. I wrote a sonnet in which I tried to summarize the main ideas of this passage. You can see it on the screen and follow along as I read it. 
The Lord was ready his story to tell. At once the cosmos came into being. The Holy Spirit was over the swell. Behold, he spoke his word, then dark fleeing. After separation, population came, and God saw the result was very good. And due to work and to produce the aim, created order's purpose understood. Yet greater than the goal to multiply is self-control and knowing how to trust. Believe that God will every need supply. Remember on the Sabbath days we must. Our God shows us that we are loved and blessed. Our God wants us to trust enough to rest. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you created us. We are thankful that you gave us the ability to exercise self-control. We are thankful that you have given us everything we need. We are thankful that we can trust you. We are thankful that your love for us is unconditional. We are thankful that you are a God who knows when enough is enough. We are thankful that you set the example for us of how to rest from creating. We pray that we can follow your example. We pray that we know when enough is enough. We pray that we trust you as we should. We pray that we exercise the self-control you have given us. We pray that we rest as you want us to. You are a good God, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.